Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. Today's episode is an interview with Stian Arneson. It's a long episode. In fact, it's so long I chopped it into two parts, both about an hour long. You're going to need a little bit of background information here. Stian used to be a 9-11 truther. 9-11 truth is a movement that holds that the World Trade Center was destroyed by controlled demolition and not simply the impact from the planes. They think that there were explosives pre-planted in the buildings. Uh, There's a couple of things that we reference whilst talking that you might not be familiar with, one of which is Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, which is an organization of uh, some architects and engineers who believe this particular conspiracy theory. They're a very small number out of the uh, hundreds of thousands of architects and engineers in the country, or the millions throughout the world, Uh, but there are certainly some people who believe it, and they are architects and engineers. Another thing that we mention is the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Truth, which is a related organization, and they have been suing a bunch of people recently. They've been suing the FBI, suing uh, the government, uh, suing a variety of other people. The Lawyers Committee is basically uh, a subgroup of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. They're very closely related. Now, one thing that comes up is iron microspheres. Iron microspheres is a particular piece of evidence that architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth like to use because they think it proves that a certain type of explosive was used uh, during the collapse of the World Trade Center. So here here we go with Stian Arneson. Stian, you and I met virtually around two years ago. On Facebook, you I think you messaged me after seeing me on Joe Rogan. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I saw you and Joe uh, discussing, well, several conspiracy theories, but I guess 9-11 was the one that made yeah. me um, get in touch with you. Now, at that time, you were, well, and perhaps still are, very interested in uh, the 9-11 uh, conspiracy theory. How would you describe you know, where you were at at that time when you contacted me? What were your... What were you thinking about in terms of 9-11? At that time, I was really deeply into the whole aspect of the 9-11 truth movement in regards to the theory of nanothermite, explosives, um, basically uh, the idea of the whole event being staged for the purpose of um, exploiting it, of course, for either financial egotistical reasons for big corporations or um, perhaps something else than that. But I guess it was in the comment section of the community where I saw you um, getting in touch with people in a different way that I've seen before. Um, you didn't call people names and you didn't um, approach them in, a, in, a, in, a, in an unpolite way. And the response in return from other truthers and, I guess, um, other members of that community was um, what surprised me, to say the least. It it was almost like um, someone reacting to having a religious perception um, threatened, in a way. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that before from um, both family-wise and uh, in other areas. And they get very defensive about it, and it gets personal for people. But you you, you didn't stop. And uh, I guess that's what um, caught my attention. Right. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, 
I didn't actually realize it was it was exactly like that when you started talking to me. Because a lot of people, they just uh, will contact me and they will say things like, you know, what do you think about this piece of evidence? Or, you know, how can you live with yourself being a shill for the government? Uh, which I'm mm-hmm. not. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I, I've really enjoyed our conversations over the last like year and a bit, or nearly two years, I think, uh, mm-hmm. because we've kind of covered a lot of ground. And I got the sense at the start that you were, you know, you, you gave a lot of, uh, credulity to uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth's position uh, that it was some kind of controlled demolition. Uh, what, what, what would you say as a relationship with architects and engineers and 9-11 Truth and your perception of them, uh, how has that evolved over the last uh, couple of years? It's, um, it's in a way twofold. It um, well, just to, to answer the the uh, the previous um, comment, um, I, I was one of those people. Uh, well, I did literally call you up and ask, tell you or <laughs> ask you, yeah. what the hell did you <laughs> how could you do how could you talk about it in this way and uh, and not talk about that and um, um, you were very polite. But, oh, I, well, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, you. You were very grounded about it in a way. You you didn't. You were really consistent about what was your goal in in saying what you said. And and from what I perceived, you your intentions are good, but it's easy for others to to interpret them as you being a chill or a shill yeah. or uh, anything else. In regards to the eighty nine eleven community, it, it, it's a twofold community in my eyes. There are people who have been living in an echo chamber for, for quite some time where mm. they don't actively expose themselves to criticism. It's very, it seems to be mostly based on emails and reading uh, forum posts and perhaps uh, watching a YouTube video where it says debunked. And I don't think that really connects to them. I, I think that they support themselves on each other uh, and this has been spiraling for for quite a while. Um, but then I feel that there's um, a section of of that community which is a lot more serious, and they are open to having discussions and debates. But I don't know if there's anyone who's pushing them to do it. Mm-hmm. If there's anyone that is going to, well, it, it also seems like there's a, a stigma attached to even talking to you um, with them being part of that community. So it's almost like um, uh, you get shamed for talking to someone who, who's challenging your opinions. Just for example, today I, I had a chat with uh, one of the guys who I, I don't know if I can tell you after the podcast, but one of, them, uh, one of the people who's going to be peer-reviewing the Alaska report. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he would be, for example, very glad to to talk to you and to discuss uh, at least the report when it comes out and another aspects of the 9-11 um, theories so to speak just to very quickly jump in like just to clear up for people who are not familiar with what the alaska report is uh this is a report that is being uh was a study that was done at the university of alaska fairbanks by dr leroy holsey and a couple of his graduate students and it was uh, paid for by architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And it was a study into the causes of the collapse of World Trade Center 7. Yeah, yeah. I see the community of AE 9-11 as a, as a um, not a divided group, but it's, um, 
but yes, it's it's like an echo chamber effect. You you just get people who who don't expose themselves to to for example the ideas that you have uh, presented, and some of them have, but they don't grow on them. They don't continue mm-hmm. to debate or to participate in that interaction. And I don't yeah. know why. Yes, it is interesting that it's very hard to get through to people, and you see, you know, I see things that. You know, I, I personally were considered to have been debunked, and yet I see them coming up again, not just on Facebook posts, but on fairly, fairly serious things like the uh, the Lawyers Committee. Uh, mm-hmm. They've done a number of lawsuits recently, and I think the one they did against the FBI uh, had a quote in it saying that the presence of iron microspheres can only be explained by... Uh, by thermite, essentially, a thermitic reaction of some sort. And yet, like a few months before that, maybe quite a bit more before that, I can't remember exactly, I'd done this whole uh, video and a a talk I gave on how there's like 10 different ways you can make iron microspheres and you make them from, you know, just from building construction and the building cleanup and the fires would make some. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all these different types of possible sources of them. And yet they, they still had this, this very, very simple and misleading and essentially false statement uh, mm. in the middle of, of this, uh, this lawsuit. And the lawsuit itself seemed to me, I don't know if, if you're familiar with it, if you read it, but it seemed like just kind of a, you know, the same old things that have been said for a long time. It doesn't seem like they're refining things at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of the ideas are pretty, um, yeah, consistent with past um, thoughts and, and and theories. But the the uh, the lecture that you that you've done and the videos, I'm not sure if the, they've been exposed to them. Yeah, uh, that's you, the problem. <laughs> How so do you? Uh, yeah, well, it, it almost seems like a diplomatic, yeah, or like you'd need a diplomat to to mm. initiate something like that because the emotional aspect of being wrong and so badly wrong and maybe not even wrong i mean just to for example you i've watched the the lecture that you did on that and as you say there's several reasons as to why the the microspheres can be there and uh, all of these other ways that we've observed them being there um are you know just part of a spectrum of reasons, and and in that spectrum, nanothermite, I guess, mm-hmm. could be one of them, yeah. and that it doesn't exactly discount it in any way. It just um, opens up other possibilities, and it's important, as you say, that they don't t- to say something like that, like that, that it's the only reason those fears can be there. They're basically ruining the whole possibility of maybe granting a new investigation because i do believe that there should be a new investigation whether it's into microspheres or explosives or whatever it is i think that it it there should be a new investigation in regards to who was actually financing it or making it happen Mm -hmm. or did someone make it easier uh for it to happen and in that case who and if those people exist and are still alive today, then of course they should be brought to justice. Otherwise, they could play the same cards again another time or in a different way that, you know, as a speculation. But uh, yes, it, to, to become fixed on that idea that the microspheres are just 
that and and there for that reason i i think is a mistake yes yeah something i always say when talking about why i debunk conspiracy theories is that you know, the more extreme conspiracy theories that people believe in prevent them from looking at things that are less extreme and you know, mm. eventually you're going to get down to things which are actual real conspiracies but if they're mm. way off like you know talking about holographic planes flying into the towers or or chemtrails or uh, you know flat earth or something like that you really don't have any hope of getting them to look at uh, the real conspiracies you know wherever that lays on the conspiracy spectrum i mean maybe it's you know, a bit further along than i think or maybe it's a bit further down than you think uh, mm. but but yeah it's uh it's a distraction and uh i think pushing everybody to a more reasonable state is good for everybody regardless of, of your position mm, mm. if i can if i can ask you you um you said something in that lecture that um uh, th- that I, w- I, I, I'm not sure what you actually meant, but you said mm. that you didn't want, um, future generations, uh, to believe in conspiracy theories. Um, do you, do you mean that in what way do you mean that? Um, actually I was kind of, uh, in a way referring to something you told me, uh, at that point in the lecture, I was referring to a story that I remember you telling me how you heard of two military people from your army, you're uh, doing their national service, coming back from wherever they were stationed and telling Mm. you about how they uh, believe in this evidence for the thermite in the World Trade Center, the World Mm -hmm. Trade Center attacks. And that's something that's always stuck with me ever since you you told me that. I think it was when we were actually voice chatting that one time. Yeah. And I I combined that with uh, an anecdote about how I had been listening to a podcast which was a couple of kids, basically. They were like 15 or 16 years old, and they were talking about uh, conspiracy theories. And so when I said, I don't want the next generation believing in conspiracy theories, I said, I, I don't want uh, former soldiers believing in conspiracy theories. And I don't want the next generation believing in conspiracy theories. What I was really refer- referring to there was, first of all, I didn't want uh, disaffected soldiers blowing things up uh, because they had some mistaken belief about conspiracy theory, like uh, Timothy McVeigh uh, blew up the mm. Oklahoma uh, building. I think he he had some uh, military experience, and mm. you know he he got into conspiracy theories. Uh, mm. you know, I think it's it's dangerous if you're in a situation where you have lots of people with military experience who have nothing else to do, and they start getting into conspiracy theories. And the next generation mm. quote was really just talking about young people, young people, you know, being the next generation if they're getting into these conspiracy theories as at a young age, then they're going to grow up believing in conspiracy theories. And we're going to get this, this, you know, false conspiracy theories and these extreme conspiracy theories. And we'll get this, uh, kind of corrupted, corrupting influence in society where more and more people start uh, taking these conspiracy theories seriously. So Mm. I wasn't saying, you know, everybody who's born from this point on should not believe in conspiracy theories. Okay. I I promote like a, a healthy skepticism of of the government, and that includes to a, de- a degree suspecting conspiracies in them. But mm. uh, I I think that the young people is something that we want to focus on because they are at risk, and uh, they are there's a lot of them. Mm. So mm. that's what I meant by that. Okay, okay, yeah, that sounds a little bit better. <laughs> I was like thinking what you were referring to there. That yeah. How did you personally start getting into uh, 
conspiracy theories in general and then specifically 9-11? It actually did begin just like you um, just like you said. It it started off as really young. I must have been six or seven years old. Wow. Um, And um, I remember my dad, he was really involved um, in research uh, as a just as a hobby uh, in the uh, famous uh, Hestan phenomenon. There's, um, there's a valley in Norway where there's mm-hmm. a light phenomenon, uh, and um, it's been going on for quite a few years now. And he was deep into this, and it's a real phenomenon, of course, and they, um, they have a research station up there now that's state-financed, surveillancing mm-hmm. the whole valley 24-7. And uh, the university has been connected to it now. So you can study physics and um, get, um, oh, what's it called in English? You, well, you basically spend a few weeks out in the field um, right. trying to catch a glimpse and document this phenomenon. And it's been quite successful. But from, from his interest into that, he, um, um, there's, a, there's, of course, an interest then in UFOs. So I picked up a, a book about UFOs. Uh, when I was uh, six to six or seven, and from there it just spiraled on. Um, remember the movie E.T. and uh, mm-hmm. Independence Day, and there was just something about that mystery of something out there that um, just drafts my my interest in it for a long time. Seeing a strange light phenomenon at four, fourteen years old later just kicked it really yeah it really grew at that point um seeing something myself and um from there it just i think it was loose change that started that whole way of thinking and the way that loose change was put together was really a in a way a masterpiece it's so well put together for a mind that's um vulnerable and uh open and um uh, if you're into music and strong you know visual demonstrations of uh what's going on and that yeah that that Whoever made that, I can't remember the names of who made it, but they did a really good job, regardless of how uh, factually based it was or, um, you know, how good the arguments were. But it, it sold the case um, very early on. And um, at that point, I think right after that must have been when uh, architects and engineers were, were formed yeah. and um, been paying attention to it ever since. But it started with UFOs, actually, so it's uh, <laughs> tipped over to something else. Yeah, well, I think my, my personal interest also started with UFOs. Uh, oh. I, was, I was very interested in things like that when I was young. I subscribed to uh, a magazine in Britain called uh, The Unexplained, and then later 14 Times. Uh, so I was always very interested in that type of phenomena. Uh, but more later, it was uh, an interest in kind of explaining what you were seeing in the sky. You know, I still don't discount the possibility of there being uh, alien spaceships, but I haven't really seen any particularly good evidence uh, that they're anything other than a variety of conventional explanations. Are you still interested in in UFOs? Well, uh, since I've got you here, I'll show you a book that I'm reading at the moment. Uh, You might have read it. 
I'm not sure if you can read that. Is it uh, inverted? Yeah, or? I see it, yeah. I Heineck haven't read it, though. I've, I've, I've heard of it. It's really good. Um, yeah. It's quite a read, and um, having him being the chief scientist from that, um, having him being a skeptic original, well, he's, he was still being a skeptic, but a, a denier in a way. Uh, yeah. he, he was just taking it as a, no, there's nothing here. And after that, admitting that the whole Project Blue Book was basically a project to calm down the masses, since they had no idea mm. what was actually going on, and people were yeah. becoming hysterical. It's interesting so, yeah. the, the connection between uh, UFOs and conspiracy theories because UFOs essentially is a conspiracy theory in a way in that it requires the government to be covering up the presence of aliens. And of course, there's various levels of it. Uh, you know, there could just be a simple, you know, we don't know what these things are, so let's not talk about them. Or there could be a mm. more involved thing where they have contact with the greys and those underground bases or even like you know, mm-hmm. trans-dimensional wormholes and things like that. So people do believe in these things. Uh, mm. I think some people question whether, you know, what, should you have UFOs on your chart of conspiracies? But I think because it necessitates a conspiracy, you know, it's, it's a conspiracy theory to a certain, the, 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 the cover-up aspect of it is a conspiracy theory. Yes, yeah, but but that the, the first aspect of it that you mentioned that the, um, this is something that we don't know what is and we have no idea what's going on, I think is a more likely one that you know that that'd be more understandable if you're basically the the representatives of whatever power there is in a society and you can do nothing about what's going on, then I think you'd uh, rather cover it up and, and not talk about it maybe than um, acknowledge that there's something going on. But, Do you see any any parallels amongst people you've talked to uh, in terms of like UFOs and nine eleven? Do you see some crossover between the communities at all? In behavior, um, definitely. Um, the well, not just behavior, but I guess topics. It's sort of a a, a soup of people that they swim in like a glass of conspiracy theories and, and they, and they touch them all. And, hmm. uh, and then you find people that are of course dedicated to one certain theory or, uh, or it could be a, a factual conspiracy. It could be, you know, WikiLeaks or it could be, it could be something else. But my feeling is that this is a group of people that move from subject to subject. Sometimes it's UFOs, sometimes it's nine eleven. Uh, and then it's over to, you know, uh, moon bases or stuff like that. But it's the behavior of these people. I was, um, I was studying the crop circle phenomenon in, uh, mm-hmm. in the UK for, for quite a few years, a couple of years ago, ending up making my own crop circle, ending that right. story. <laughs> so, Sounded like fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was indeed. Did you, but, did you do it in the middle of the night or was it, uh, yeah, yes, using uh, night vision optics and uh, <laughs> some <Excellent>. other stuff. <laughs> Did you do that to, to actually test to see you know, if it's plausible, personally, and yes. figure it out? Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Um, well, I'm, of course, I'm open to the possibility of there being a, a phenomenon previously uh, that could have been separate. I'm open to that because in this crop circle community, you have – you have different groups of artists, maybe five or six different groups. One might be from London, another one from Liverpool, and they all gather during the summer in, in Wiltshire, and they 
almost some of them are in contact with each other and they sort of compete and they're sitting around just like um, almost stereotypical, uh, uh, you know, near pubs and having a yes. pint and they go out and smoke some weed and they, and they have a lot of fun. And then they watch these people go bananas when they go into crop circles afterwards and they see helicopters and they camera crews and uh, they do really get a laugh out of it and, um, and a lot of fun too. But they, they do acknowledge that there are crop circles where nobody knows who made, made it every season, actually, that there are crop circles that are really, really good and nobody has any idea who made it. Mm -hmm. And these groups have been in contact with each other saying, do you guys make this? This is beautiful. But nobody knows who made it, basically. But the, between the uh, 70s and 80s, there was quite a lot of crop circles that nobody has any clue who made. Which is which is interesting, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. But the uh, there's been witness reports of um, these people uh, when they've gone out making the crop circles, seeing strange phenomena themselves, like balls of light and mm -hmm. these types of things. But nothing, no grey aliens running around. Yeah, I think uh, with the crop circles, it's obviously quite possible. It's just someone who prefers to remain anonymous, uh, mm -hmm. and they enjoy. Uh, the notoriety of being, you know, the dark crop circle maker or whoever he is, the the phantom, phantom. Uh, what do they call seriologists? Uh, probably. <laughs> I think I think it is seriologists. People who study crop circles. That's maybe just kind of a jokey thing. I actually have had uh, crop circles in my field out back here. I've got like uh, like a small field behind the house, and when the grass gets long enough, uh, the deer come along and they kind of walk around in circles in it and they're not very good crop circles but no, no. i can i can see how uh something like that could get started because when i'm walking through my field and i see this kind of area that's kind of got the grass kind of swirled around in a, in a direction it's not perfectly circular or anything but it seems like you know it, it could occasionally go into a perfect circle and if the, the the crops were just a bit different you could you could imagine a natural real simple crop circle like that happening yeah. and then the guy goes to the pub and tells his mates and they have a few drinks and then they go and have a look at it and then they're like whoa look at this amazing thing it must be a ufo and it just grows from there obviously and then it, people start making them and it gets even more yeah uh, it could have definitely yeah. there's a, but, yeah. but there are uh really interesting exceptions though back to um what was it the 1940s and 50s where these um circles have appeared and um but they were really simple in design they weren't that complex mm -hmm. uh, complex as they are today and um but the, uh, the what has happened in the crop circle community is very much alike uh what has happened in the uh, 9 11 community as well uh, in a in a social way because what happened is that the believers basically traveling from all over the world to walk in this phenomenon and, and to, to feel the energy, so to speak, um, they hate the people that claim that mm. this, is, this is actually man-made. And then you have an interesting group of people um, that does travel to the UK and, you know, are in this, into the spiritual aspect of it. When you when you bring up the fact and you know it may be evidence that uh, these are man made, they'll say that well, 
maybe they are man-made, but maybe it's God working through them, or maybe it's... Uh, right. So they always find a new way to use it to uh, feel good about themselves, I'd say. It, I find the same behavior in, in both groups, but of course, there, it's completely different subjects, and there are completely different questions to ask in, in yeah. regards to the events of 9-11 and, and uh, crop circles. But the social behavior seems to be the same. And what has happened is that the um, intensity from the believers has, has grown so strong over the years that a lot of these circle makers have quit because they've been mm. harassed and threatened and um, uh, there's been some lawsuits uh, going around. I know that Three other ones that I knew have quit uh, and are doing the sand circles instead. One of them is um, quite famous now. His his name is Julian, but I can't remember his surname. But he he's do, he did a lot of the um, the most advanced circles, and when he right. quit, the the really good ones disappeared, and they showed up on the beaches of Dorset <laughs> instead. So <laughs> the um, I uh, remember. Uh, you know, people would go to these crop circles and they would try to get evidence, which kind of reminds me of people, you know, g- going to 9-11 dust and trying to get evidence from that. And I remember they actually found iron microspheres in crop circles, mm-hmm. which I believe the, the the source of them was probably micrometeorites because there's actually quite a, a constant dusting of, of micrometeorites that falls on the earth like you know pretty much constantly if you go if you take a magnet and you just go through some dirt you will find mm. them and it's actually best if you do it like on a rooftop or something like that but you, you can find them in dirt and so yeah. they they found iron microspheres and then they said these iron microspheres can only have come from some kind of you know advanced propulsion engine therefore mm. these iron microspheres are proof of crop circles Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know it sounds kind of silly, and you know, people might say I'm I'm just bringing up that example to to belittle the iron microspheres, but you know really it is the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it if, is. If you look in places, you look anywhere on the on the world, you're going to find iron microspheres because they're basically falling out of the sky, and yep. every construction project will make billions of them. So they're all over the place. You know the the, the yep. brakes on your car spew off a few if you brake too hard, and uh, you know they're, they're just mm-hmm. they're just like they're everywhere. That's but people are searching for evidence. So they will find evidence, like with the crop circles, they, the, the stalks of the, the, the wheat or whatever is supposedly bent in a certain way. Mm. And that reminds me of on 9-11, you have these uh, columns that are cut off at a certain angle. Mm. And even though there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for both things, you know, the, the, the stalks were bent because the guys were pushing them over with a board or whatever they use. And the columns were cut during cleanup and they cut them at an angle. So they would uh, fall in one direction and not the other. Mm. People still cling on to these things. Like I'm sure if you look in the crop circle community, now you will find a lot of people still using this, uh, the angle of the, the wheat as, as, as evidence. And you still, Oh yes. You see people using the these angle cut columns as evidence. Uh, yeah, the, you know, there's that one in particular uh, where I tracked down the photograph of it still standing and uncut uh, from like six weeks after, and mm. they still use the same debunked stuff like we were talking about earlier. It's very I don't know about frustrating, but it's very 
you know, what do you do? How do you get through to these people? Well, so far, my experience is that the only reasonable way to do it is is through diplomacy in a understandable and it's hard to be too nice to them as well because you if you get too nice with them you um you lose them they they um mm. they go straight back to believing whatever they want to believe which is of course their right to do and 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 mine and yours as well but it's like a fine balance you need to be a little bit it'd be a little bit rough and you need to be a little bit nice and you need to uh find a really social balance to to break through to these people but in regards to the in regards to the crop circles when the when the crop circle phenomenon died out um which it it did quite a bit in in 20 2012 or 11 that's when it uh, died quite a bit off when these most of these artists quit you saw people remove themselves from from the crop circle phenomenon and they um switched over to what's it called ley lines and uh, mm. these um so-called um the energy blood veins yeah. of planet earth so f- these areas where people used to be which I, I i love that the fact that they did this um and i joined them for quite a few nights just sky watching you had car parks around wheelchair just packed with people with binoculars and night vision and they wanted to see ufos making crop circles and you had campfires and you had a you had in a way a a community that was very nice very well-meaning they didn't do any harm to any people at all when they lost that they just moved to to the um ley lines community or the sort of this shamanic uh, culture that's over in the uk so they just spread off, and it, it seems to be, to me, uh, a need um, to believe in something bigger than yourself. I have a feeling that some people do actually go crazy if they don't have a mental support that can carry them through through life, because li- life can be rough, really rough for a lot of people. I mean, for most people, it's it's just about bringing food on your table and uh, having enough for your kids to to manage and in that roughness i think um a religious aspect in in any in any direction will will help you accomplish that in a in a way that makes you feel good about yourself and if that is believing in crop circles or thinking there's bases on the moon then i i completely understand it it's it's a part of human human culture and human nature for a long time and it's probably going to continue for a long time but I guess you you're more into what what happens when it becomes damaging, and when is that point? When when is when is it that it becomes a um, a threat? You, like these soldiers that come home and mm-hmm. and really believe in in this and that. I mean, there's I have um, I mean, there's quite a bit of of other soldiers that come back home and they're they're not pissed at the government for conspiracies necessarily but for sending them off to a war that's um bullshit to to put it in that way and and they um so i i don't i don't find that conspiracy theories would be the the threatening aspect of this i think that the the -hmm. government's making decisions that traumatize people and uh where they discover that they've been lied to is a lot more dangerous um than um than believing yeah. that someone else did 9-11, for example. 
Yeah, I think perhaps the uh, conspiracy theories there might be more of an issue on the individual basis that rather than a general societal dissatisfaction. Uh, in America, mm. we have uh, former military and former uh, law enforcement like police. Quite a chunk of, of them uh, kind of join biker gangs. Uh, if you, a lot of the people who are in uh, bikers are usually older guys who used to be in the military or they sometimes were in the police and they're just basically essentially rebelling against society. You know, there's all kinds of different biker gangs. I don't want to like cast all bikers in the same, same lights, but there, there's, mm. there's, there are these uh, bikers and militias in the United States, which, uh, you know, I think form in part, you know, lots of different reasons, obviously, but because of that, what you talk about there, the dissatisfaction, uh, with you know the government sending them off to war like an unjust war that they when they mm. got to the country they realized was unjust perhaps they realized before and the, or maybe they realized when they got back but you know they realized at some point that you know they have been used and perhaps they they were forced to kill people over there and then they mm. came back and they have to fit in with uh, with society and mm. yeah and I think perhaps you're right it might not be the uh, the conspiracy theory might not be the the general threat there but mm. uh, certainly it does raise its head i just want to touch on something you mentioned earlier you talked about you know these people in ufo watching parties having a great time mm. and then moving over to the ley lines and i imagine they have some gatherings that they do at uh, glastonbury mm -hmm. tour or wherever uh, yes that's the place yeah and they i think you know, you say like having a belief in something gives you this, you know, a sense of order in the universe. But I think the social aspect is a major factor. Like you get this, this, this social life from having this uh, shared passion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mm -hmm. think this is something that I see, you know, not just in UFO culture, you know, they, they all like talking about UFOs. They have UFO conferences. But in 9-11, you get these local 9-11 groups and local chemtrail groups, and you get these groups of people, and they they form a family in a way, mm. and they get together and they have fun and they help each other. And I think, you know, and you should tell me what you think here, that being part of a family prevents you from getting out. Like, you know, if you start thinking... Uh, you know, negative thoughts about a theory like, oh, maybe 9-11 wasn't a controlled demolition or maybe these UFOs are just, you know, maybe crop circles are just guys with boards, then the the idea that you're going to lose your family, you know, your, your, mm -hmm. your, new, your new family might, might uh, dissuade you from even investigating that. Is that something oh, you've seen yes. or thought about? Oh, I've experienced it several times. Um, uh, the first time was... Um, uh, if you uh, if you know about a group called C-SETI and Disclosure Project that was funded by uh, Stephen Greer. Um, uh, well, I know SETI, but and I know Stephen Greer, but I'm not familiar with this, this project. Stephen Greer uh, is a, a UFO guy, isn't he? He thinks that there's aliens yeah, in contact he and things like that. He funded a uh, well. He, he funded several organizations, but he funded one called CSETI, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence. In I think it was in the nineties, um, and he was in the UK in two thousand and 
2011, I think. I might be wrong about that. But it was in Melksham, and they were funding a new organization, a sister one, sister organization for him um, in, in the UK to basically do the same thing as C said he was, and that is to go out, uh, meditate, and to ask whatever is out there to come down and show itself and um, to initiate contact with whatever is out there. And um, I was a part of that group for around seven, six, seven years uh, as, a, as a technical consultant with, the, you know, uh, photo cameras and binoculars mm-hmm. and night vision gear and recording and everything, electromagnetic recordings and everything. I'd, I'd wanted to uh, do the nuts and bolts stuff and not have so much to do with the uh, <laughs> spiritual aspect of it. Right. But um, when you noticed that there wasn't really much going on and um, that what they were seeing were, you know, iridium flare satellites, mm-hmm. started asking questions about maybe what you felt or thought you felt or what you saw maybe wasn't that. And uh, it um, created some stir inside the community and um, I was eventually excluded from uh, the organization, uh, hmm. which was called Serper. The reason was, if I can remember how he put it, that my um, my inner energy didn't synchronize with the group's energy. Right. <laughs> so uh, I was then. You're a uh, troublemaker. Yes, and um, was then excluded. And it, of course, it, exactly how you put it, you you feel excluded from a family, which is a family where you find an openness and inclusion that you don't find anywhere else. Because if you talk about this stuff in a in a the normal society, so to speak, my experience was that in school, in family, usual friends, you were what's the word uh, ostracized or yeah. you know pushed out there as well just for talking about it but here is a group of people that are including me the more i talk about this and the more i exaggerate my own stories mm. to put it like that and they um cherish it in a way and it, it just it's like you're swimming in a sensation of um of love almost um you're so on the same level of a belief system and wanting to believe that and it's it's hard to find that inclusion anywhere else. It also happened in the crop circle community. For example, I, I was I was uh, very well connected with the um, the crop circle researchers over there, like um, Ava Marie Breckester, Lucy Pringle, and um, one of uh, Dr. Greer's uh, personal friends. Um, I can't remember his name right now, but it's many years ago. And as soon as I told them that I'd met with one of the circle makers. As soon as I told them that, that I'd met one of them, I was excluded. And the reaction from the uh, researcher, Ava Marie Breckester, was that of anger and frustration. And I was there with um, a good friend of mine when this happened. He's um, a cameraman with with the History Channel, previously BBC. Uh, He now works for the TV show Ancient Aliens. He started observing the same thing as me, that the, the more you ask questions about whatever these communities believe, they will exclude you. So it's this 
it's almost like a double morale in, in all communities like this because they, they claim to be excluded themselves from the beginning by normal people. And then they get into this community. But as soon as you become one of these normal people again, or, or maybe not normal, but just start asking fundamental questions, mm-hmm. they're the ones excluding you. So they're doing yeah. exactly the same that they've experienced themselves. And this is when this is what I saw like when you were in these uh, comment sections that yeah. it is a type of exclusion. And it, it's um, to me that was personally painful in a way to watch at that time because it um it just makes you angry as to how people can communicate with each other in that in that way but yeah that happened in the crop circle community and now uh, it ha- yes <laughs> it happened there as well um i've been com- connected with um uh, an artist uh, artistic community here in, in norway uh, that do art pieces um and they're really good at it and it's an amazing group of people but as soon as you start doubting or asking questions about 9-11 that maybe it wasn't that bad or maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't explosives maybe it was this instead or maybe it was other people behind it but uh they didn't use explosives but as soon as you start approaching that you kind of get the same sensation um, that they get of you, that you're a shill or that you've right. been put, you know, that you've gotten disinformation or something. And uh, so I think you're right. Yes, there is a, a, a type of exclusion here. But it, that, that family inclusion, it, um, there's, there's nothing quite like it because it's so, so powerful. And I, I, I don't know why... I don't know what it's like in the skeptics community. If you guys get the same sensations of being skeptics together. I don't think it's quite the same. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't know. There's a degree of community, I think in any like group of people with similar interests, but I don't think we have exactly the same, you know, you, you, the conspiracy theorists think they're changing the world, uh, like in a revolutionary manner, whereas mm-hmm. skeptics are just kind of improving the world a little bit at a time. So it's, I don't think you get the same same type of thing, but uh, yeah, it was fascinating. Like hearing you talking about being excluded there, because um, I don't know. If, have you read my book, Escaping the Rabbit Hole? Uh, no, I haven't read it. The yet. first chapter, well, not the first chapter. The first interview I do in the book is with a guy called Steve, and his story there is is around nine eleven, but it really seemed to. Uh, parallel what you were saying in uh, I think it was the the, the crop circle uh, uh, thing or maybe the UFO thing but mm-hmm. you know, basically he had this real sense of family and he even said there was lots of beautiful women in the group so he, that, was a, that oh. was a positive thing as well uh, mm-hmm. so it was like a dating opportunity as well But and he had a great time and he was into <laughs> UFOs and he he would get up in these 9-11 meetings and he would give stirring speeches and everyone would applaud him. And he felt like yeah. he was some kind of hero and he really, really enjoyed it. And yeah. it, it took uh, him asking questions uh, for the, the, you know, the spell to break. And it kind of happened when the group started getting interested in chemtrails. And he, that was just a step too far for him. He looked into chemtrails and discovered that they were just, you know, contrails, mm. brought it up. And then they told him, you know, basically what they told you, that his, 
his energy didn't mesh with the energy of the group. <laughs> and so <laughs> he would have to yeah. move on. And so he lost his family, yeah. uh, which I think was actually, actually kind of hard for him. He actually, he, he, he went back to those groups more as a debunker. But I think in yeah. part it might have been, you know, because that was his family and he wanted to talk to them still. He's still actually yeah. friends with them. So, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting parallels there. I should send you a copy of my book so you can, uh, so you yes, can read please. that. At this point in the discussion, we started talking about uh, various aspects of 9-11, including a bunch of fairly technical aspects. So I've kind of cut that chunk out. It's about an hour long. And I'm just giving the end of our discussion here now. The chunk that I've cut out will be available in another episode. Uh, some of your argument that you're bringing forward are very easily understandable, but um, I think some of them are also alternative explanations yes. and not exactly a debunk. I agree, so to speak. I agree. And this is something that... Uh, I would actually encourage that interpretation of it. But the point is, there is an alternative explanation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the point here is that there isn't just one possible source of whatever, or one possible reason for these mm. things. There are other mm. possible reasons. People say things like, the presence of iron microspheres can only be explained by thermite, which isn't yeah. true. Or they will say, you know, what the firefighters saw can only be explained by thermite, which also isn't mm. true because the, what they might have seen something that wasn't molten steel. You could say like this meteorite can only have formed from one thing, but there is an alternative explanation. It's just, you know, crushed. So I give a narrative and I don't prove it, but I present mm. it as a possible alternative explanation, which you, I think, you know, you can consider it. And I give, mm. you know, I give you the supporting evidence that I have, like the meteorite has unmelted steel in it and it has bits of paper in it. And, mm. uh, yeah, and also concrete doesn't actually melt really. It kind of like disintegrates into its components. The language um that's being used in this um in this manner of, of debunking, so to speak. Um like in in your lecture you said a couple of times just debunked that whatever this is, it, it's debunked. And maybe the language is a little bit too yeah. monotone or or just too too um yeah, you know what I mean. That it's. I agree with you. I agree with you, uh, and that's actually something I I've tried to rectify to a degree in some of the shorter videos I've been doing recently, which I did after uh, after that presentation. Like I will say at the end of a video that this doesn't prove that this is, but it's something else to consider. And I think now I, I really should almost like start out saying that. Uh, you know, what I'm about to show you does not disprove the theory of controlled demolition, but mm. it's something to consider, especially if you think that this aspect is evidence for controlled demolition. Mm. So, because mm. th- people get very defensive uh, when they think that you are trying to remove the underpinnings of their world. And yeah. they, they view something like me debunking iron microspheres as me attempting to disprove that 9-11 was controlled demolition. Mm. And so they fight against it with not, not just simply with the, uh, to preserve their belief in iron microspheres, but to preserve their belief in the entire 9-11 thing. So I really have to Mm. try to separate that out and say, all I'm Mm. doing is saying that there are other reasons for iron microspheres 
one of which is thermite. I actually make iron microspheres with thermite in the uh, uh, in the talk I do. Although I do mm. also find these little white eyeball microspheres, which yeah, uh, but, causes problems. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but there are people. Well, uh, in the debunking community, or for example, on Metabunk, and mm. um, people in the skeptic community that seem to take a um, that they feel they're part of a team. And that team is debunking, and that team is to show and almost like it's it's a fight to prove people that you've been debunked, or they put it yeah. in the end you it's debunked. It's like this, it's a way of communicating that um, almost like a, a self-loathing. Uh, you get get a sensation of people almost getting high of themselves for being appearing to be more intelligent or. A, or reflected than than someone else, and it completely ruins the mm-hmm. whole argument that they came with to begin with. And I see this very visibly in the in the skeptics community that they they're they're riding a high horse, many of them. And even if their arguments are sound, it doesn't really matter because the way in which they're communicating it is basically just ruining it. Yeah, no, it's a problem. And, uh, and yeah, in my book which I'll send you a copy, uh, I talk about how the first thing you've got to do is establish effective communication. Like mm. If you're not communicating effectively with somebody, it's kind of pointless. And I think there's a lot of bad debunking being done by the skeptics community in two ways. One is kind of like the rusted judgment where people will just you know, make up the first explanation that comes into their head for things and then tell you, oh, well, that's obviously it just collapsed because of the fires and, uh, you know, Blah blah blah. They'll make up some explanation without really understanding the nuances, and so it doesn't really come across very well. Mm. And the other bad debunking is being just like you say, being very uh, dismissive and uh, you know not really, not really taking the time to understand what the other person is talking about. Just kind of a, a mm. rush to judgment uh, without really knowing the topics, and a lot of the times that backfires, especially in a more mature. A theory like 9-11 when a lot of the proponents uh, like yourself to a degree uh, you've been involved in it for a long time and you know a lot of the the arguments and you might know mm-hmm. more about it than the debunker and then the mm-hmm. debunker comes in and you know you say something and then they just say whatever comes into the top of their head they don't take mm-hmm. the time to listen to you and find out what the context is of what you're saying and why you believe uh, what you believe, and so they end up uh, like not debunking things because they will they will just offer very very slight objections that don't really make sense because they don't really understand the context. Yeah, so it's a problem. Yeah. I wish people wouldn't wouldn't re- wade into to debunking things before they understood things. Like a silly example, but flat Earth. Uh, there's a famous experiment in flat Earth where you you measure the length of a shadow. Uh, at one spot and then the length of a shadow at the other spot and uh, everyone says like oh this proves that the earth is round uh, mm. it doesn't though uh, it just proves that you know that the sun has a different angle between these two sticks it could mean that the sun is very low mm. uh, so because this experiment doesn't prove it and yet it's in popular culture it's a, a way of, of proving the earth is round then yeah. uh, when someone is a, a bad debunker, they will often go for this 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 weak argument and give it to a 
uh, a flat earth believer and then they'll just roll their eyes and then it's kind of hard to have a discussion with that because you know you've got to explain to the debunker about all the the math of involved with the angles and everything and you're not going to get anywhere so uh, take your time if you're a debunker yeah yeah absolutely um one last question the, the what what do you think has been the biggest learning experience for you doing all of this work what has um made the highest impression uh, that's a good question and i think it is kind of what uh related to what we're talking about there in that you can't just explain something to someone and then expect them to change their mind no matter how uh how valid your explanation is there's more to it than simply debunking as in giving the correct explanation it has to fit into a a broader understanding of what the other person is about you know what their their entire world view is mm. uh and you have to make sure that you are communicating effectively and that they understand what you are doing as well as you understand what what they are doing what they are saying what their thought process is so you mm. ha- you have to take the time to actually establish communication before or during the actual debunking i think mm. before i was very focused on uh figuring out what was wrong and then writing an explanation of why it is wrong mm. but that doesn't really work because i did that for chemtrails like starting in 2006 and i've written all these explanations of why uh contrails can persist and yet we still have all these people on the internet saying oh you know if it's a a long contrail it must be a chemtrail so uh-huh. just having the explanations doesn't doesn't work you can't just you know explain things to people and you, even if you do it online in you know in a chat room or something you say here's the explanation they either they don't read it or they look at it and they think it's disinformation or they just it goes in one ear and out the other So yeah. you know, I've I've really changed in the way that now I focus more on communication and like outreach like trying to talk to people and this is part of the way I'm doing this podcast. I want mm. to talk to people who uh on all sides of the spectrum. Uh I say you're slightly on the conspiracy side of the spectrum. Uh <laughs> uh which is great. So uh, I actually thought you would be a bit more uh conspiratorial. Uh, oh. based on some of our perhaps i was i was looking at uh, our older interactions and not the, the more yeah you were <laughs> yeah <laughs> so two years ago you were a bit more of a, a 9/11 truth i mean i mean i think you know you obviously you're still very interested in figuring out exactly what happened and you still have a lot of suspicions uh yeah. so you know you're you're a good person to talk to because i think uh seeing your journey uh in and out of the rabbit hole I think is a good illustration of you know what can happen and you know, it's not all bad. No, uh, it's not. Yeah. It's actually liberating. Yeah, if you're coming closer to the truth and you actually recognize that then I think it's a good thing. You might have lost yeah. your uh, crop circle family. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure you still have friends. <laughs> I do have a couple of them actually. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to try to make another one. But uh yeah distancing yourself from the emotional aspect of um believing yes. in those theories is is very liberating. It does help you um see things more clearly, definitely. Yeah, and I have heard that quite a lot. People uh you know, it's like the scales have been lifted from their eyes or whatever. They they see things more clearly. It's 
Mm. I think for a lot of people, they they labor under, they kind of know that it isn't real for a while, but they stay in it and then it kind of becomes a tipping point. And so it can be, even though it takes a long time to get to that point, when it does fall away, it can fall away fairly rapidly, like the, the false aspects of your belief. Like I think you mm. probably had suspicions and questions about various aspects of uh, these various things, like all the things that you've been through, like the the, the UFO uh, uh, people who made UFO appears, the crop circles, and then some aspects of 9-11. Uh, mm. You have questions about it, but you still stick with it because that's you know what you believe. But then the weight of the evidence at some point makes whatever that aspect is fall away. Mm. And I've, I've, I've heard that being described as being... Uh, being yeah. liberating, but also probably sometimes a bit distressing if, it, uh, if it's a bit of a, a shift in your worldview. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. It's um, I, I, so I can imagine that you're you're on a journey to find the um, the holy grail of trying to communicate um, to to different communities in, in the best way possible. Yeah, I don't think there's a holy grail though. I don't like I say there's no <laughs> no silver bullets. Uh, I think oh, okay. it, it's very much tailored to the individual. Like what works for one person isn't going to work for another. There are certain things I think that just that do work well, like um, finding common ground, uh, finding things that you actually agree on. Like mm. uh, you know, I will often ask somebody, like you don't think the Earth is flat, or you don't think the chemtrails are real, even though you know, maybe they do. So we find, you know, where's the dividing line? between what we agree on, like we would agree, for example, that uh, Queen Elizabeth is not a, a child-eating reptile. Uh, mm. I, I some people do think that. And then mm. you go down the line and you say, what don't we agree on? And why, why are we disagreeing? Why do we agree on something that's you know, just this further along the spectrum, but we don't agree with this thing? You know, wh- mm. why, would, uh, why, would do we, why do we agree that no plane... Or why, do we, why do we agree a plane hit the Pentagon, but we don't agree that... On the controlled demolition, why is one thing implausible and more implausible? So, I like to look yep. at that that yeah. line. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion, two and a quarter hours. So oh, really? I think I, <laughs> yes, it's oh, been uh, very good. I think I might have to split it into two pieces. To, uh, All right. Get you, so you get two episodes, part one and part Oops. two, Stian. Uh, yes. So I'd like to thank you very much for taking this time, and. Uh, Maybe we'll have you on again when uh, you've proceeded further. Oh, your, uh, yeah, I'd I think uh, I'd like to talk to you again after after the report comes out, the Halsey report from uh, from Alaska. Yeah. So that would be very interesting because I think your your take on that is is uh, been very interesting. And yeah. all right, well, thank you very much. I'm going to stop recording thank now. You did listen to episode three of Tales from the Rabbit Hole. The extra material I cut out is going to be available as episode four. And coming up next week in episode 5, we're going to talk to Dan, a former apocalyptic prepper who now is no longer an apocalyptic prepper. This is Mick West with Tales from the Rabbit Hole.